Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach. Today's episode is our very last for series six, and it's a special one. But first, I wanted to thank each one of you for all of the love that Not Too Busy to Write has received this series. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful messages. If you do get a chance, please do leave a rating and review. It really does help others to find the podcast. I also wanted to let you know that places for my next book proposal group program beginning in May will be available shortly. If you would like to have some support and accountability for your nonfiction book proposal with a small group of other writers, then do sign up to the waitlist. There is a link in the show notes. My last group program sold out, so if you've got your eye on it, then the waitlist will definitely give you the best chance of nabbing a spot when they go on sale at the end of March. Now, on to today's episode. Daisy Buchanan is a journalist, author and broadcaster who began her career in teen magazines and is now a novelist and the host of the chart-topping podcast, Your Booked, one of my personal favourite podcasts. It was such a pleasure to speak to Daisy about her incredibly varied career as a writer. We talk about how she put off writing fiction for so long because of a fear of failing at something that meant so very much to her the incredible training ground of being a full-time journalist and the joys and challenges of writing about writing about sex and also the importance of reading just for pleasure. Daisy is incredibly open and honest about her highs and lows as a published author which is so generous of her. Publishing can be a tricky beast and it's easy for us all to focus only on the major successes but the picture is often far more complex than that. Daisy's second novel, Careering, is out in paperback now, and her third novel, Limelight, is available for pre-order and will be out in June. Daisy has an incredible pre-order competition, which she mentions in the episode, so do keep your ears open for that, and the links are in the show notes. It feels very fitting to finish this series, interviewing one of my personal favourite podcasters. And thanks again for all of your support this series. I'll be back in your ears later in the year. Enjoy the episode. Daisy, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Benny. I'm thrilled that we got to do this this series. Um, we had a chat. We were thinking about doing it later in the year. You've got a book coming out in June, but we decided to do it now. And I'm so excited to finish off the series with you. Um, but I wanted to begin with talking about your early career in magazines. Um, you went from magazines to freelance journalism. You wrote nonfiction and memoir before turning to fiction. Um, your third novel's coming out this year. I guess my first question is, why the switch to fiction? What was it that drew you to fiction? Well, I think I've as soon as I could read and write, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to read stories and write them and tell them. I do think that's really human and really primal. And I was so frightened of it for so long because I was so scared of failing at this thing that I longed to do. And I mean, I think as well, a lot of the time, I sort of have this idea, even though I knew the stories that I loved. I mean, I love Noel Stratfield and Diana Athill. Um, I just read um, uh, Barbara Commons' Us Beans Came from Woolworths for the first time. That's one of those books that like, I felt like almost like I should have read it when I was 13. That sort of really, really, really strong voice. And the plot 
isn't slight, but it's not a kind of, there's no dramatic, like, and she was dead all along or whatever. <laughs> and yet I'm sort of looking around at books and writing what people are interested in. And I think especially when I was getting old enough to think if I wanted to do this, would I have to write something really like dark and intense and unexpected and weird? And I don't think that's very me. And it took a long time mm. to kind of find the faith and confidence to think, well, actually, a story I want to tell is worth telling and to also to want to do that without hope of I mean no publication or success or whatever and I'm still I think coming to terms with that that I think you know writing a story is valid you know no matter what happens when you've written the story um and to yeah and to remember because when I was a kid I think you know we all did this where I just write stories constantly for fun and I'm always Mm. trying to kind of get back to that and how then I, I never sort of sat down and thinking I you know of like oh when I know this needs to happen and the thing that I'd have as soon as I you know thought about writing any kind of prose fiction was premises would fall into my head all the time characters turn up constantly and I'm like well now here what do I do with you yeah. and I've worked out the only way I can figure that out is to live the story with them um and I don't really know. I think when I wrote my novel Careering, um, I sort of knew how that was going to end. But that was partly because I originally wanted to write it as a story set in the 1970s and make it a bit different. And everyone was a bit like, that's a bit too different. Um, stick to what you know. But also because um, it was that magazine world. And I'm, oh, I think everyone who has work for magazines or works in journalism in any capacity does romanticize it a bit and I think it was quite important to to me for that to not be my first book to Mm. draw that deeply and then think well now where do I go but I mean it's always come at a time when um I'm really fascinated by the intense emotional relationship that we have with our work and I feel like we're still so far from coming to terms with that and sort of whenever you know looking for any kind of career advice or help and lots of it is like well you know you need a schedule and find a mentor and do this and do this and it's sort of so binary and exhausting and you know quite regimented and frightening and you know I've always felt I've been very bad at being an adult at work. I've always just wanted the grown-ups to be pleased with me. And, you know, I'm 38 next week. I'm a (laughs) grown-up. The book called How to Be a Grown-Up. I need to get on board with this. I was thinking, you know, the oldest ingenue in town is not a good look. when. (laughs) Well, let's talk about your early career. You started off working in magazines, as you were saying. Um, Take me back there. Where did it all begin? Um. I think really for me, it began, um, I did a lot of student journalism at university. Um, You know, it always felt very awkward. Um, I got my big break because um, things have not gone so well for him since. And he's a a problematic figure. But I volunteered to interview Tim Westwood um, and no one else did. And I was just, I think, yeah, I'd not been to any of the socials. No one wanted to come with me. I got really scared, but I was on an email mailing list got the email and I said, great, I'd love to do this, thinking, well, everyone's going to want to do this person that we've all famous DJ we've all heard of. There's no way. And um the editor, a guy called Dan, who I was extremely fond of and have lost touch with, um, 
he once came to a birthday party I had as all of Blazing Squad. Um, <laughs> I note. He was like, you know, you're on. Let's go. And he was made lots of jokes about how it was like the number one fan of the big dog. Um, <laughs> and it was really what gave me so much confidence then was how seriously everyone took it and students take themselves so seriously. My yes. Um, and then had an absolute blast. And also I had a niche and that was when I sort of figured out that news journalism really was never going to be my forte. And I just wanted any excuse to kind of to write jokes and do jokes and free stuff. That was my <laughs> MO. Um, but then as well, it was, I mean, I was at York and it's quite a sort of posh uni, very, I mean, you know, I'm, I cannot pretend that I'm not middle-class, but there, but it did feel like, oh, everyone here is, um, they've got an aunt at the independent and they're going to stay with her in Fulham for two weeks in Easter and do work experience. And I thought, well, I, I don't know anyone who'll give me any work experience. Um, and I got this awful first job um, in financial PR because I just thought I, I just need a job. I was convinced I was going to not do well on my degree. And I thought, well, I need to get this job before anyone finds out. I didn't know what imposter syndrome was then, but oh, I had it. Um, and I just had this real like absolute panic of that. Like, I just got to, you know, if I stop, I'm going to end up doing the job I was doing in my year out and be working at the call center um, selling insurance forever. Um, and obviously when I was fired from the PR job, that was where I went. And it was interesting because I just read a, an excellent memoir, but it's the comedy writer, um, Sarah Gibbs. And she talks yes. about her, her first job. Has she been on the podcast? No, I haven't, but I have her book. Yes, I know what you mean. Yep. Right. But yep. this absolutely humiliating appraisal, whether like this this is all the ways, these are all the ways that you're not fitting in. This is all the way, these are all the ways that you're, you're bad here. And that exact thing happened to me. And I'm still like curdled with shame. Oh my goodness. Not good. I was too, I was trying so hard to just be, keep my head down and be normal and do a good job. And I wasn't good enough. And then moved back home with my tail between my legs, feeling like, and I think I was just, I was so, depressed and vulnerable and frightened and I was like I've just graduated and why do I feel like I'm failing and I had no idea that's so common and so normal um I think I saw the bliss features intern job on uh media guardian website and I was applying to everything and being turned <laughs> down for like no you can't come and be an editorial assistant for three days a week on this puzzle magazine um <laughs> so I still remember when I got that email saying, we want you to come in for an interview. And I remember thinking, this might be the most exciting thing that ever happens in my working life. And yeah. like running up and down the stairs, my parents' house and like running around <laughs> the garden because I was just so like vibrating with this energy. Um, and then, yeah, my editor then told me I got the job where I said I'd rather work at Bliss than Vogue. And I meant it and I mean it. And if I had gone to Vogue, I think I'd probably still be in a fashion cupboard doing returns and sending back fancy shoes while being paid, you know, enough to I, probably one shoe a year. I love this story so much because to me, this makes perfect sense knowing what I know about you and having listened to you on your podcast a lot as well. Um, this idea of kind of, I guess, you know, first of all, going with what feels good to you 
and um, and there being no kind of hierarchy of what's better than something else. I think that's true. I mean, it was the best place for me because it was a tiny team and there was mm. no money. So, like from day one, it was like, right, you are writing for the magazine, and it's yes. the best writing education I could have wished for because you have to do so much so quickly. You've just not got time to agonize over anything. Like, is it is it good? Is it not good? And I was so lucky because all I remember, and definitely, 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 stuff would come back and it would get subbed and changed. And but you know, people there like went out of their way to encourage me mm. and say nice things about my writing. And it was, I think, possibly because it was a magazine for teen. Well, it wasn't even really a magazine for teenagers. It was a magazine for um, eleven and twelve-year-olds mm. who <laughs> think thought they were sixteen or wanted to be sixteen. And that was, I think, the vibe they got in all of their staffers. And there was, um, I worked with an amazing woman called Zoe, who um, is, I think, now at Cosmo. Zoe was really glamorous. Um, a year younger than me in real life, but like a year ahead of me professionally, which yeah. really stung. <laughs> and she was really, she'd go and interview all the pop stars and look like a pop star herself. And there'd be a picture of, you know, because we were we were always like, okay, if you go out and interview someone for like the letters page, like, hi guys, here's the issue. We need pictures of you with your celebrities. And Zoe would just be like, meant to be there. And I would be <laughs> sweaty with my hair sticking out with my face always about five times the size of the face of the celebrity <laughs> I was with. Oh. Um, but it was just a, a blast and a, a riot. And there was no sense of like, oh, well, we need to dumb ourselves down. Yeah. If anything, writing for this really quite critical, demanding audience, everything had to be so fierce and so sharp and so funny. And I think as well, it was, if it had a, I mean, this wouldn't be a slogan because it's a terrible earnest slogan that would put everyone off, but I think it would be like, bliss, we're funny and kind. Because um, that was the kind of the end of the era as well, because I loved Heat and I loved more. I love magazines so much. But when Heat was bitchy it was the infamous yeah 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 it was wasn't it yeah all of that and it was so normal and I've really noticed it now and as a total sort of irrelevant sidebar one of my favorite guilty pleasures is when you see a sort of nonsense pop culture documentary and they're all the talking heads chatting away and when it's there's more time between when the documentary is made and now than there was between like when they made the thing the documentary is about. So something made in the year 2000 about the 1990s. I'm like, yes, please. Thank you, <laughs> but you see everyone saying the rudest, cruelest things about people's bodies, about people being different in any way. And it, I know sometimes it feels like we have not come far, but I think we really have. We really have. Yeah, we yeah. See that. Yeah, we really have. Well, so you had this this really incredible experience writing a lot um, um, on Bliss, and you went on after that to freelance. Am I right? You would you ended up being an agony art for Grazia magazine. I mean, incredible being an agony art in your twenties. You were still in your twenties, I think, weren't you? I was probably in my very early thirties. Okay, <laughs> um, and you were also writing for the Pool, which is where I got to know your work. An incredible, was such an incredible place um, where 
I got to know lots of writers through that um, through that organisation. And, and I was that was quite a big thing in terms mm. of writing, um, finally writing fiction, because when the pool went down and we didn't know what was going on, and it was just like, oh, you know, everything's fine. No one's replying to your emails saying, um, could, please, can you pay me? But like, it's it's okay, it's okay. And that was such a it was so sad and I met so many talented women and I'm so proud of the work I did there. And there was so much brilliant work there. And I think there was that like, Oh God, if, if this can't work, cause I was, you know, probably there was a point where I was sort of writing for them, like, you know, most days. And it was mm. like, I loved it. I loved that feeling of almost sitting an exam. And when I was doing a lot of comment for the guardian as well, it was like, look, we just need 800 words on this in an hour or by lunchtime. Like, don't have time to make it good. Just go, go, go. And I yeah. think it's actually quite a good skill to have. Really yeah. good, incredible when, skill. When that happened, that was like, well, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. I think I can't say, like, oh, I can't possibly do the big, scary book I want to write because I don't have time and I don't have this and what if this and I should be earning money and I should be whatever. And I just thought, no, I've just got to do it and see. Mm. I've got no plan A has stopped working out. So and it wasn't even really a, a plan B, really. It was, I don't know what it was, but I'm I'm glad I did it. I mean, I think as well, I got so burned out from writing about news. And obviously, yeah, I did that very much in the shallow end. It is such a massive privilege to be writing opinion and comment. And I know when I think of the journalists who are writing about global and local atrocities and reporting mm. on those and having to, I think it must, I mean, I think it would, it, I think it's just mentally so bad for us. And, you know, now I feel bad. I do a lot less journalism and I'm on a real news diet, which I feel guilty about often, but also what's the alternative? Yeah. What is the alternative? That's so interesting. And it makes total sense. This is why I wanted to ask you about the pool finishing, because I wondered if that had been pivotal in you shifting from putting a lot of your energy into journalism to writing books. But before that, I believe before that you had started to publish already, but you were publishing nonfiction and memoir. So talk to me about how that came about. And also I'd love to know what that process felt like looking back now, the process of publishing memoir how did that feel at the time well I mean I'm wondering whether we are similar in any way with our book journeys when you know writers and when you write journalism and you've written personal pieces and a book is a bit less you know the idea of a novel you think oh I could never but you're like, well, really, this is what 20, 30 odd features <laughs> do that. <laughs> I get my head down and put my mind to it. Um so what in terms of my well, I was writing this very silly column blog about um Made in Chelsea for a website called Sabotage Times. And that was really when I before I left Bliss to go freelance, which I didn't think I will go freelance and further my career. It was a kind of, we're going to be cutting down on staff and this mm. is probably the best way for it. Like, well, there's just no way this is going to work. No one's going to want to hire me. How, how, what will I do? But I'd started writing for Sabotage because um, I was desperate to do 
something for anyone because I had been at Bliss for a long time by then and I did really want to to branch out and it was just really exciting to see to write in a new voice and find my voice mm-hmm. and who was I when I wasn't writing for teenagers and when I could be a bit you know wilder funnier um or funny in a different way you know what yeah. is that and it was it felt like a really fun space to do that. And there were lots of other exciting writers writing. And I'd sort of, you know, dabbled very badly in blogs and been really, you know, done that like, I'm sorry, it's been eight months since my last blog. Um, <laughs> and because lots of people are reading Sabotage Times, it's James Brown's site. And um, there were writers like um, Irvin Welsh, Randy Dawson. It was a real boys club. And to be honest, at the time, that did kind of appeal because I was in my... Um, mid twenties, and it seemed like the the thrilling opposite to a teenage girls' mag because you know that's what it was. It felt like a rebellion, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah, the Maiden Chelsea blogs. Um, that was the thing that I wrote that people liked and were very enthusiastic about. I think because at the time, no one was writing about that show, and then lots of people started. But I was taking it intensely seriously in a very silly mm. way. And it was, there were lots of kind of high-low. Like I remember once doing quite a long joke about um, the Bluebird by Maurice Maitlink and the Bluebird in Chelsea, the restaurant they all go to. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm away with this. It's <laughs> coming and be like, what are you doing? Um, so off the back of that, because um, there was a, and it was a kind of, I was like, oh, like I can see like the same, like eight people in the comments every week who are enjoying this. It's really nice. It's the community. And then um, there was a day when it went viral and the Maiden Chelsea shared it with each other and luckily found it funny. Most of <laughs> And I was on holiday, um, a very early holiday with my now husband. And we'd been in Paris and we'd both accidentally eaten a whole kilogram of chips each because we mistranslated the French and thought, well, that can't possibly be. And we sort of got this like arm load of chips and we didn't say, oh, well, we'll eat a normal amount of these. And we just, well, we've just got to plow through. So <laughs> I think I came back and I, it was back sort of fairly early days of Twitter. This was 2012. I had a ton of notifications and it was a bit like, oh, what well, this is what maybe it's done some weird glitchy thing, but it was all, um, it was that. And so on the start, this very long story on the back, off the back of that, and that it sort of had this, this readership, um, James said, let's publish an ebook of the columns. And then no one, surprisingly, wanted to buy an ebook of the columns they could read on the internet for free. I didn't buy. <laughs> um, then I used to write, um, again, doing uh, free stuff for the Agenda, um, went to their Christmas party, met my friend Angela, who's first book was about to come out confessions for fashionista she'd been um a fashion booker um and was writing this anonymous column for daily mail and she's incredibly cool and she now writes amazing um crime psych thrillers angela clark she was just so kind and so lovely and i was like so i wrote this book and nothing happened and now i'm stuck and then that quite i now recognize that like obnoxious 20 seven-year-old me being like I'm so ambitious and why isn't anything happening and being really <laughs> that. um and she invited me to her book launch met um her agent Diana who's now my agent um Diana resold the um the Maiden Chelsea book to Sphere for 600 pounds and Sphere are now my publishers again so that's a weird 
Oh, same publisher. That's so Um, funny. And then I wrote this dating book. That had been something that had been sort of rumbling long before I met Diana, where I'd been, sorry, I think that's post, um, it's heard noise. I'd been asked to do this book. um, And it was a sort of like the publisher had it and we just, you know, need someone to actually crack on with it. And I was really excited and delighted. And that seemed like a really cool job um, for me. So I felt very awkward about getting Diana involved. I'm like, oh, well, they're going to say, oh, she's got an agent now. We don't really want her. And Diana did a really brilliant job of negotiating my fairly tiny fee up to make it worth, more than worth her being involved. Um, and then I was asked to do some ghostwriting and that but never came out. And so Diana kind of kept saying, look, people aren't just going to keep asking you to write things. You do have to write something. You do have to have an idea. Um, and I suppose how to be a grown-up kind of came from bliss and me. I just loved that so much, writing about feelings and confidence mm. and friendship and early relationships and thinking, well, I, I know how to talk to the young reader about this, but I would like this advice for me now, mm. which I think is where it came from to be kind of funny. I All I ever want to do is be funny. Whether I'm successful or not at that is not for me to say, but to just, I think, be really, really reassuring and I don't, I think weirdly, while that was going on, there was a lot of like glossy girl boss. Into, I think around sort of 2010, mm. you know, or just after that. And I was like, and I sort of like looked up and I'd written this book and it's like, oh, everyone has turned into a model and they've got these Instagram accounts. What is this? <laughs> um, but weirdly, I think I'm allowed to say this. Um, How to Be a Grown-Up is being bought by an American publisher. Um, and it's, I think, coming out there this year. Um, and I was, before Christmas, sort of editing it. And mostly it was like, look, every time you say flat, you say apartment. Um, but it was very strange to look back on that book and think. And I was quite nervous about it. I was like, oh, is it is it going to be all right? Is it going to feel really dated? Is it, have I made any jokes that now would feel horrifically unkind and sensitive and jokes that I wouldn't stand by? And I thought, it's okay. I'm proud of this book. I think it holds up. I think it's fine. I think it like bliss. I think it's basically, it's as funny and kind as I could make any piece of writing and that's okay. That's so, what an interest. what a really wonderful experience in a way, being sort of slightly forced to re, not forced to, but like revisiting it because, you know, work. Um, and then, and kind of almost having to rediscover it again. Because has it been about, what, six, six years since it came out? Five, six it years? It came out like six years ago. And obviously, yeah. I was, you know, I finished writing it. Uh I mean, you know, I started really doing that work. I started writing that proposal in, so I had the idea in 2014. Mm. I remember I was away on holiday and kind of I was in New York and jet lag and couldn't sleep. And it was a four o'clock in the morning. I think that was when it kind of, it came into my head. Um, So yeah, that sort of have been, you know, having those ideas and writing and thinking and then to go back and yeah, that's it's a long time and a short time, isn't it? Yeah, that's so nice. Well, so 
you know, I think it's really interesting. I think probably some people who haven't ever published before um, might think, oh, well, transitioning to fiction must be easy. You've already got a profile. You've got books you've already published. You've proven to yourself you can finish something. But talk to me about the reality of switching to fiction and starting a new genre from scratch. What did it feel like to put yourself in the shoes of writing fiction for the first time compared to you'd already, you'd now published a few times nonfiction. What did, what did that process feel like when you started? So when um, we sold How to Be Grown Up to Headline, um, different publisher, they, um, they made an offer two books, which is why I wrote The Sisterhood as mm. well. And to be completely honest, my experience of publishing How to Be Grown Up was quite hard. Um, it did not sell so well. I mean, it still sells now, which I'm so moved by and delighted by. And in a way, this sort of, you know, publishing in America, it's kind of undone quite a lot of the shame I feel because there was quite, it felt like there was quite a lot of hype and quite a lot of excitement. And I was sort of their new author. And then, um, yeah, for various reasons, it just didn't kind of take off. And I felt like a loser and a failure. And I felt really ashamed. And I was going to these sort of literary festivals at the weekend. And I spent the summer promoting the book and feeling like, you know, and signing it and feel like lots of people were coming along and interested. And it felt really good and really positive. And then sort of hearing this kind of, the vibe I got was like, oh, you know, sort of like bad news. And and they even said, oh, and I got this email when I was on holiday um, and I was knackered from doing the book stuff. And I thought this is going to be my lovely treat. And I was reading my emails on holiday, which is a mistake. One day I will learn how not to do that. But there was an email that was sort of sent straight to me from the publishers without going via my agent. He might have softened it. And it's like, because of disappointing sales, we are thinking about changing the title for the paperback. And it was I just, I felt sick. I felt so sad. I felt so like just ashamed of myself. Like, what did I do wrong? And I think I really, really carried that heavily. It really weighed on me. Um, And, you know, when I wrote The Sisterhood, in a way, I sort of, I had nothing to lose when I wrote that book, Mm -hmm. you know, at the same time. It was, and I think, you know, this is a fairly common publishing experience. Like, my goodness, you know, there are, it's so hard, I think, for everyone who works at every level of publishing, the pressure and the expectation and books really don't get time to find the audience that they need. It's just like, it's it's there or it's not there. Um, so yeah, The Sisterhood, um, I think, did a little better. And there's some really nice sort of, you know, people sort of came out and, and supported it. Um, And I was so, I felt so burned, I guess, and sad from what had happened with How to Be a Grown-Up. I kind of really like cut myself off from it as much as I could. I refused to read any reviews. I didn't really want, you know, I love the book, but I didn't want anything to do with the the publishing process. And I was kind of going to events that, yeah, I was sort of taking everything very personally and everything Mm everything that went wrong in my head that was really wrong that was a really bad sign so long story short my old publishers were not chomping at the bit to do another book with me and I was not a good sales bet I wasn't someone where they'd be like well she's written fiction then yeah sure we'd love to publish that so headline um saw the first um version of insatiable and turned it down um and then quite a lot of people turned it down because I thought um sex sells and to borrow a line from limelight and my mm-hmm. sort of elevator pitch because I was because people the thing that 
my friends who are early readers who also other writers said so basically this is a sort of Sally Rooney does 50 shades of gray and I'm like yeah great that is a fairly clear elevated pitch I love it let's go for that and then there was lots of like oh no well we can't because you can't say that to other publishers because they'll get frightened because they can't like mix like literary and erotica and this isn't literary don't want it to be too erotic and there's lots of like um quite a few people said oh we love it but we have absolutely no idea where we begin to publish it and quite a few people said why have you sent us this porn she's a pervert um <laughs> and then sorry there were oh. a couple of publishers who were interested but and you know they were both really thoughtful about kind of how it's going to work and what it was going to look like and you know what it was going to be and I think, I don't know if this is all completely true, but I do think sometimes with books, we think, oh, those like massive, massive hype on acquisition, like blah, 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 everyone's really into it. And whether it's better sometimes to be a grower than a shower, Mm. um, because I'm like awkwardly looking away and not at you. And I'm like, sociable did quite well. Um, So... But yeah, I think that sort of, in some ways, and this is going to make me sound like a Nepo baby, Nepo baby, being like, well, actually, it was much harder for me than you could ever know. <laughs> but um, being a sort of a known author, I don't know that that necessarily helped me. I mean, I think it really yeah. did. Re- I'm really lucky to have, I love my agent so much, and she's a really good friend and really, really supportive and brilliant. And also, you know, because I'd like written for the pool and written for sort of fairly like well-known magazines and had a decent, you know, social media, whatever. I think publishers were definitely willing to kind of take a look when the the outline or the sample chapters went off. Yeah. But it's so it's so interesting because I wanted to ask you about about this because um you write about you write really you write sex really well really, really well. And not many people can write about sex very well. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to me, but also kind of not surprising that you had lots of people going, oh, I don't quite know where we would put this because, um, because yeah, sex is not necessarily in, in lots of fiction. And I think mainly because people are really bad at writing it. (laughs) You have a really good talent for it, but I wanted to ask like, so where, how did you discover you were really good about, you were really good at writing about sex? (laughs) there's a joke I like to make which is they say that crime writers are the nicest people in the world because they get all their nastiness out on the page (laughs) sexy writer not a drop of sexiness left in me um well in terms of my own experience I think I've always my outlook for horniness has always been kind of my imagination. And mm. I was reading, I love Julie Cooper and Jackie Collins. And I think I've definitely talked about that on my podcast and other podcasts, but yeah, that kind of, that imagination, that idea that in a book, you can have all the sensations and experiences that mm. you can. And quite often, you know, if because um, Insatiable is the story of Violet, who is, in her late 20s, mid 20s, down on her luck, things aren't going well. She's left her fiance and she um, joins a throuple um, who are a big deal in the art world and um, starts going on all sorts of sexy experiments. 
Um, I used to spend a lot of time reading Craigslist adverts and reading about couples who are looking for their third um, and thinking of my idea of what that might be like versus the reality of what that might be like. Um, in Fern Brady's amazing memoir, Strong Female Character, which I love so much, that just come, came out and it's blowing up. And it's so I'm sure people have probably read it already, but if you haven't, really great read. Um, she writes this amazing it's really funny and it's quite bleak a chapter about how she um joins a couple for threesome when she's a teenager and they're maybe in their 20s or 30s and it's just a bit grim and she thinks she's going on this like wild fun experiment but you know she sort of she doesn't really fancy them that much she's kind of put off by the fact that even their house doesn't feel like a sort of fun house to be in i suppose um And there's an amazing, my friend Joe reminded me of this. Um, at the end of the chapter, it says something like, you know, even when you think you're really grown up, like adults can always tell when, mm. when you're still a kid. Um, and yeah, I sort of know that if I'd wanted to have any violent adventures in real life, if I, you know, was writing about something that had happened to me, Insatiable would be a very different book. And I think mm-hmm. a joyless book and... I wanted to have very, very, very real emotions, but I also wanted the sex to be entertaining and in the way that it is in Dilly Cooper. Well, like, you know, I often think of um, in Riders, the first rupture book, and um, Janie Lloyd Fox, who's not called Janie Lloyd Fox then, because uh, she's not married, seduces Billy um, in the wood. And she's also, when it happens, she's just, um, I think, fallen in some sting nettles or something. And the way Jilly writes it, it's, 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 I mean, Jilly loves the sex pun, but it's really hot. The idea of having amazing sex with this guy and this guy being so into you and so excited about it. And in the sort of, you know, the being all like sensitive and what, I mean, that's amazing. In real life, there is no Billy who just be sort of telling you how beautiful and fantastic and incredible you are. The pain of the nettles. Which and I was going to say, sex in the woods would probably but. be very difficult. <laughs> and so I think that's it. There was lots of, I don't know if I call it criticism, but I think there were some reviews that were like, yeah, everyone has orgasms suspiciously quickly. And that's just a shame in a way, because now I think I do take that on board a little bit when, I write about sex and I do feel like I should make it more real. And the joy of insatiable is I wrote it. I mean, lots of writers say as well, well, you know, don't write sex scenes to turn yourself on because that's a bit grubby. And I, I do. Because <laughs> how can you put something out in, you can't, you know, I, I'm i not like, oh, I don't get high on my own supply. Like, how can I expect anyone to find it hot if yeah. I don't find it hot? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'd never heard people say that before. That's um yeah, that seems really strange to me. It almost is like in general with fiction, surely we should be writing the kind of books we want to read, right? Mm. Yeah, I think that's kind of also when you've got to sit down and because it's as you know, you're on a fourth draft. Like it's a Sunday afternoon when everyone else is in the pub and you're like there with your laptop, like <laughs> weeping over the 300 words that are just like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> you've got to be, you've got to love your book. You've got to yeah. love your book enough to spend that time with it. Because if you're doing it because you need to make other people love it, 
you know, in the way that anything we do, um, I say this a lot, Anne Lamott, you know, nothing, I'm going to paraphrase it horribly and butcher it, you probably know it better than I do, but there's nothing outside us that can fix anything within us unless it's an organ transplant. Mm. Mm. And I think that's it. If we're seeking money, success, fame, validation, whatever, through our book, which I understand. I mean, God, like, I want those things. Of course I do. But I also know I'd get them and I wouldn't want them. And to be completely honest, I have had things happen to me in my professional life where before they'd happen, I'm like, well, if I got this, I'd never be unhappy again. And uh, that that is a lie. Yes. Exactly. That is a lie. Well, let's talk a little bit about Limelight, your upcoming novel, which is coming out in June. Um, There's a sister relationship in the novel, which is so beautiful. And it's such an integral part of the story. And they're two sisters who are incredibly different women. They love each other very, very dearly, but they also have a tendency to hurt each other as well. Um, What was it like writing about that sister relationship when you've written about your real sister relationships in memoir? Was it quite freeing in a way to be able to explore it in a different way in fiction? Yeah, it was quite daunting. I do tend to, I've made my other heroines only children. I think the, you know, because of sort of panicking about not wanting to have a sibling where they're a bit in the background. I think maybe that's because that relationship is so important to me. I couldn't. Mm imagine having a sister who's not part of the story I suppose and I was quite I don't know nervous of it and one of the big things that happened and one of the things that made this book so hard is the story is then about I suppose attention celebrity culture having someone change your life having someone say do everything that I tell you and I'll fix you And I was so into that part of the story, the sort of like the transformation of Frankie the heroine and this world Mm. she ends up in. Um, And I think as well, it didn't help that um, I was trying to write when Insatiable was out and careering, the next one had just come out and Mm. read, you know, trying not to read reviews, but getting tagged in the odd thing in Instagram and people comparing insatiable and careering. And we're like, oh God, so people like this, they don't like this. Which is why I'm never going to read reviews again if I can help it. It just breaks me. I've got I've got an editor, I've got other editors, I've got an agent, I've got friends. They, <laughs> we're all on the same team, people of the internet. They might have just wanted to read a different book, like let them live their lives, say what they say. That's absolutely fine. But I don't think it's, feedback that makes me a better or more confident or happier writer anyway um sorry that was a no no but that's so interesting because you're not the first person that said to me that the third novel was the trickiest for that reason for that exact reason because of the timing of publication Hmm. that that's the third novel that where you're writing that you you've already been very exposed to what other people think oh is it because I guess the I started careering um when I was writing it when Insatiable had come out, but mm. I think there was a mix of things. So because it was, I think because there was so much nice stuff happening with Insatiable, that spurred me on. Also, I was ghostwriting at the time and trying to move house. And so careering almost felt like a treat. Yeah. And I, I was trying to get kind of as much of that done as I could to be, I, 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 momentum was my friend. And then I sort of mm. broke during Limelight. Um, but yeah, after the first draft where I was really like, I remember finishing and it was, I think, the Thursday before Easter. And I didn't have 
any kind of feeling of joy or pride or relief I just really like I sort of felt myself go oh and like oh god should I should I look for work like what what is this thing I've this is not I where do I go from I felt oh like low I can't tell you sorry uh and then the feedback from my editor he was really kind um and I had to say you know because she was like this is this this needs a lot of work and this is working and this isn't working and I sort of said yeah I know I'm I'm a mess I'm sorry I don't feel good about any part of this um but she said problem is you've got the sister relationship that we really care about and then you drag Frankie away to this other world and mm. it's the sisters and it's Bean's illness and that dynamic and the family and their mum Alison and all of that stuff that's going on that's the story and the analogy I kept coming back to was um if you buy a dodgy car and it's um two cars welded together and sprayed yeah. like an accident and you can get you know 20 miles down the road and then it'll blow up and I had these two two halves of different cars I'd sprayed together <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it after I've read Limelight and it doesn't feel like that, that that's what it, that was part of the process. And it's so interesting that, yeah, it's, it's so interesting as well that that's book three that that happened on. In a way we kind of always think, oh, things, things will just get easier. Things will just get easier as I get, as I do it more, right? No. (laughs) I think your first novel, and I know you're on a, a fourth draft and I like, I cannot stress this enough that the respect and admiration in it that what that requires of you is just so much um the the fortitude I think that's really hard but I do think there's a feeling of the bliss of number one if you don't really know what you're doing and you are kind of amusing yourself and you're so free of voices and commentary and there are a lot less mm. living in your head and my goodness I mean the privilege of having a contract and writing, knowing that it's going to come out and, you know, feeling that it is your job. That's a big deal. And I will never take that for granted. But at the same time, the sort of this, like, like oh, you know, you, you, well, you've got a publishing schedule and you need to do a book a year or people will forget about you and there'll be the paperback and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's quite hard. And, oh God, it's not hard at all when I think of the lives people live and what people do. No, but, but it is. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a huge amount. You're pouring yourself and so much emotion and energy into these manuscripts. Um, and a book a year is 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 an intense schedule. That is a really intense schedule. I'm always incredibly, incredibly grateful for writers who write a book a year because it's as a reader is like incredible. It's such a treat to to that often to have somebody bringing something out. But it's it's a pretty grueling schedule though for a writer. I mean it's I've started um the next one and I'm already feel like I'm quite behind. I know lots of other writers who are giving in their 2024 but I have a I have a title I love and a premise I love and characters I love. Oh, um, great. I've got about 60,000 words and I've just given those to read to my husband and my agent and agent has not, I've not heard from her yet. And it's so weird because there's something about that. And again, yes, I know how lucky I am, but that I've got to write today and I wrote yesterday and I've got to write tomorrow. And, oh. <laughs> 
Um, and as soon as it was off my desk, as soon as I got this like long mad Google document and said, like, look, this is um can I swear? Um Ruffer's bottom holes was the um, <laughs> you can definitely swear, it's fine. It's um it's a big old mess, but it's it's something, it's it's a, quite a lot of words. Because also that I even, you know, that's not even it doesn't feel like half a novel, to be honest. I don't think I'm quite halfway through and it's too long to be halfway through. I think I've got to lose at least 15,000 words of backstory. But um, it's such a lot to do by yourself alone with no feedback and no sort yeah. of positive, encouraging person um, or sort of word in your ear. And yet as soon as it was off my desk and I thought, well, I'm not going to do anything until I've talked to these people, I could see it moved and I was like well this is what's not working and yeah this, and it needs more of a pull and it needs yeah. this this is in my head but it's not on the page yet and of course of course of course and that felt really liberating and um yeah. so the solutions are starting to become clearer yeah. in your mind now that you've taken a break from the actual writing for a little bit and I think as well that knowing I'm allowed to take a break and not feeling that because I think with limelight I also got so like no you lazy person you're a bad person you must write thousands of words a day right until it's done right 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 you can sleep on your dad and yeah funnily enough that didn't help didn't work didn't work I know it's so interesting isn't it it's like um I I I keep having these deadlines with my with my agent for the next draft and in and people keep telling me I'm a little bit crazy in terms of like what I'm trying to achieve in, in a certain amount of time. But actually, I really want to because I want to get it off my desk again. Because when I don't have it in front of me and I know she's got it, suddenly things start to make sense in my mind as well. Although this is technically supposed to be the last draft. So let's hope that I can pull it off now. But there's something very freeing about it's like, oh, it's off my desk. It's off my desk. Yes. And now I'm just free to let it roam around in my brain and all sorts of things get solved. It does feel like a heavy thing that really is sitting on your chest when you're, and I think that's it as well. It's not wanting to be those moments of wanting to be excited about writing. And I think I, something happened where, cause I was like, I just, why can't I get her voice? And I was thinking about something on a walk and I had that moment of coming out of the shower and being in a towel and be like, I've just got to get this down. And that's such a, Oh yeah, what a when you're gorgeous like, oh, feeling. What I'm doing when I'm like, I don't know, trying to pluck out a chin hair or putting some eye cream on, and I don't like. Oh, I'm half finished skincare because I've just got to write this bit and see where this goes and explore this and just to really like nurture and cherish those moments and trust that they will come as well. I think I've also been like, I've just got to. I do have to grind it out to get where I need to get, and even I had this. The other day as well, a walk, um, and I was really getting in my head about something, and I was real sulk, and I was really like worrying and ruminating and freaking out. And then after I got through all of that and doing quite a lot of like look to myself, you know, you think about this all the time, and it doesn't fix it. It just goes around and around, and like go around and around if you like, but there's no fixing. And then a scene where a way of making the thing need to happen next month. Like, oh, well, you know, maybe like, and after she's thought of him, he'll write her a letter. And I'm like, well, that does feel a bit clunky. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I made a weird reference to something happening. And I wasn't sure where that was going. But quite early on, I said that this happened. I just use that. And I just drop another bit in there. And I'm done. And it's like, it's so, I just, 
our brains know so much more than we give them credit no and it's so satisfying isn't it when puzzles start to slot together in that way i and- panic so much if i can't see the solution straight away like wordle yeah. i'm like why why where is it what and actually yeah that going away and coming back and the you know like a key in the door yeah and really be there for hours it seems and then you just have to sort of walk away let it change temperature yeah. come back and it pops up yeah or like tugging on the seatbelt in your car when you pull too hard and it doesn't come and then you keep tugging and it keeps getting stuck and then if you just take a breath and pull slowly it comes <laughs> um well i would love to talk to you as well about your gorgeous essay that you wrote for the pound project burn before reading um, I love the Pound Project so much. They've I've got a whole collection of them. They're so beautiful. You wrote this essay about um, burnout and how reading got you through burnout. How did that essay come about? And also, um, what this something it, it spoke very deeply to me because I've always used reading as a coping strategy for as long as I can remember. And I don't always hear people talk about reading in that way, in the same way that people talk about sort of exercise or, you know, friendships or things like that. Um, and and you really dive deeply into it. So so tell us a little bit about how the essay came about and also your experience of, um, of burnout that led you to kind of rethink how you were approaching your reading. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm going to do a real embarrassing embarrassing for me maybe um some obnoxious sort of Charles Peter is showing off where yesterday I was invited to um the Queen Consort's reception at Clarence House to celebrate um literature and um it was extraordinary and like nothing I've ever done before and probably like nothing I'll ever do again um but it was really scary and fun um but I felt like mad after it was two hours of being very on and very like, oh, was that Richard E. Grant? It was Richard E. Grant, it turns out. Um, <laughs> and I do, I, I do struggle. Um, I'm very, I'm not someone who gets their energy from that. Um, and I do find that harder as I get older. And it was, you know, such a, I was really, I know how very, very lucky I was to be there, but I properly felt like I, I'm so tired. I might start hallucinating. I might start tripping. I felt high from the tiredness. And the only thing that made sense was to get, when I got home back to Margate, um, run a bath and read a book. And that day of celebrating literacy and the power of words and, you know, literature being serious and important and vital and all the rest of it. Sweet Valley University. (laughs) I actually saw that on your Instagram this morning. I had no idea there was a Sweet Valley University. No idea. Yeah, there's a whole, um, and that's I'm going to be um, reading quite a lot of them on eBay. And it's a copy that belongs to my lovely friend, Joe, who's a big reader who reads everything high and low. And actually our friendship um, came about over books. We're both members of the Jimmy Cooper Book Club. But um, the, my favourite people do read everything. And that's a huge part, I think, about reading and burnout, as I think so many of us do think of it as this homework hobby. Yes. Like, oh, I've not read this and I should read this and I must read this. I'm like, like writing I think we have to read for ourselves mm. first and often I think as well I find rereading so comforting mm. it really helps me learn everything I know as a writer I think is because I reread and 
you work out how your favorite writers are doing what they're doing and you're not consciously thinking it's not like English literature where you're like as in like school where you're studying it but you just that's how we figure it out I think how how these stories are built but yeah I honestly think it's better it's probably just so much better for your mental health if you're like reading 10 minutes of Sweet Valley University book every morning than if you wait until you go on holiday and you take some enormous like war biography or mm. it's a, a big heavy serious book um and also it's a muscle and um I read Bleak House before Christmas um not my favorite book there were things I really really loved about it and it really transported me um uh Esther is probably not my favorite heroine because I'm not <laughs> sure I don't love when Dickens writes a woman um but I'm so glad I read it and I really respect its place in the canon and I had to read ballet shoes once a year for 10 years or longer probably before I could get the sort of the muscle and the chops to feel like I was ready for Bleak House that's so interesting. And I think it's so true, isn't it, about this idea of a muscle. And I'm like you, I like to read everything, just everything. Um, and I really loved when you wrote in the essay, um, my hope is that after reading this, you will read for yourself. You will start to read in a way that fills your heart and blows your mind. I love that so much. And I think there's so much genre snobbery and so much kind of literary snobbery around um, either people perhaps sometimes intimidated by the books that are out there and feel like it's homework and they should be reading it and they beat themselves up for not doing it. Or on the, on the flip side, there are people who sort of shut off whole areas because they think, well, it's popular, so it can't be any good. Um, and it, it just seems quite crazy in a way. And I guess I just, um, I love that you're part of a kind of, I guess, a movement to kind of try and do away with that idea that some books for some people and some books are for other people. Oh, which I really, really hope so. And uh, partly why I started the Your Book podcast, because that snobbery made me so sad. And it, I was thinking about that, like, what are the books that really comfort you? Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, when there's a sort of, you know, the features in, you know, I love it in The Guardian when people are like, this is like my book of the summer and you must read it. But it does sometimes get a bit, you do just want someone to say, the fifth annual. Um, I love this. I always read it in the toilet. But that I think the most, you know, profound and moving parts of our lives can come from such sort of silliness and something so pure and so like I just loved, I think if we both read the new Curtis Sittenfeld that's coming in May. I, I haven't it. read the new one yet. I'm dying to. <laughs> oh good. But Penny, what's sort of amazing about it is we think of Curtis Sittenfeld as being the sort of real like literary stalwart, and she is, but this is so pure. It's a book that will meet you exactly where you're at. It's so smart, but it wears its smartness lightly in a real like mm. Nancy Mitford way. It's not a book that excludes anyone. Um, you can engage with it sort of in any way you want to. Um, I mean, I think Nina Stibby does that phenomenally as well. Yeah. So, so brilliantly funny and crisp and every line is like a poem. But again, it's it's for readers for sure. Um, mm. Taylor Jenkins read. I was just um, doing something for um, 
someone at BBC Culture was writing about um, Daisy Jones and the Six and mm. about um, TJR's influence. And I was saying how I can really see Jackie Collins, who I think was an absolute trailblazer, uh, creative, you know, that's her legacy. That And people maybe, I think feel quite cool when they read Taylor Jenkins read and they maybe not might not feel that way now about Jackie Collins. Like, I'm sorry, my friends, it's all part of the same glorious universe. Yeah. Um, but then even um, I loved Wahala by Nikki Mose, my absolute mm. last year. And that was, I think, sort of packaged as a thriller. And when I, I was like, mm, probably not for me. And then my friend Lauren Bravo, whose brilliant first novel, Pre-Loved, comes out at the end of April. That is gorgeous and fantastic and moving and it is quite stabian I think if you love Neva yes Neva Rice um it's gorgeous but never ever twee anyway I digress where was I um yes uh, Lauren said no it's about women and it's kind of about clothes and like wanting to live as a glossy modern woman and sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing and it's got that humor there it really pulses and it's not it's again another brilliant book that's written for readers it's really Mm. alive and there are some contemporary books I struggle with a bit because I I feel as though I just feel as though I'm not cool enough for them. I feel like they're saying, mm. you can't sit with us. Um, and But, you know, lots of people love that. And if that brings them comfort and joy and delight, then that's a brilliant thing. It's so, I really, really struggle to kind of forgive myself for not loving all the books. And I think that's a really hard thing for any writer Interesting. to do. When we do that, when we have to make peace with not loving all the books, we have to make peace with the fact that not everyone will love our books. <laughs> it's, being exhausted from trying to love all the books this is true this is true I like a lot of books there's no genres I say that I don't read at all I would say but that doesn't mean I love every individual book it's absolutely true some books are just meh not for me and I think we have to remember as well that it just depends on where we are and like what mood we're in there's stuff that I know I just wasn't really feeling anything that I've sort of I've had to read for um but then sometimes um I had to read the booker shortlist um mm. for and it was the year when um Duck's Newburyport was on the shortlist yeah oh I feared that book you know it's it's a thousand big. pages and a yeah. single thing big <laughs> and I was like this isn't going to be any fun um it's and also I was like well it's just going to be so hard to kind of keep a track of what's happening and I read it differently I let it wash over me and just rather than trying to really really digest it all I just kind of took it in in waves and I had to start by sort of setting a timer putting my phone in another room and just reading for an hour and it took a couple of goes but then I was in it and I was really surprised by how much I thought of that book when I was away from it and I think of it still and the rhythm of it was hypnotic so um I mean another book I keep talking about that have you heard of this book A Little Life it's very good um <laughs> mega smash hit of like one of the most famous books of the 20s is that is that one of the most what are the most mentioned books on your podcast do you think that come up time and again it's a little life one of them that comes up time Actually, and again I wouldn't say it was to be honest oh, interesting um, I, I was very late to it um 
it does come up a couple of people love it I thought I was going to hate it and I yeah. it um most mentioned but um Eva Rice the lost art of keeping secrets comes up all the time um all no stress especially ballet shoes um mm. a lot of Nancy Mitford um a lot of there must be some people must read some men people must read people who aren't white women writing <laughs> in the 1950s um I have to say, Daisy, I think you are responsible for me discovering Barbara Pym. So thank you very much. Ooh, brilliant. I'm sure, yes. I'm sure it was your podcast that got me into Barbara Pym. What I'm a delight. Nice about that that was my lo- my first lockdown was reading oh, Barbara Pym, basically. What yeah. a lovely place to live in your yeah. first lockdown. Because, yeah, Barbara Pym and Barbara Trapedo. Um, yes. Oh, my goodness. I just read that in the last few months. And, again, because I kept seeing it going – well, Daisy thinks I should read it. I know she does because she mentions it quite frequently. And I read it and I couldn't believe that I hadn't read it. I just, it it is such a delight. The um, Brother of the Morphanus Jack is just completely and utterly delightful and blew my mind in ways that I hadn't imagined it was going to when people had talked about it. Blew your heart and blew your mind. Uh, It was just, yeah, gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. So thank you very much. You're definitely responsible for quite a lot of spending in my house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have said, sort of in jest, like if anyone wants me to talk to their bank manager, <laughs> but that's a lot. Who has a bank manager anymore? I'd be on the chat book, wouldn't I? <laughs> oh, I don't want to Well, speaking of, have you got anything that you've read very recently that you adored that that you would recommend? Well, there are two books I've read in tandem and accidentally. Um, I think they really complement each other. And I didn't know this when I was reading. And first, it's a reissue from a small press, an American press. Um, but if you Google, it's Peter Hujar's Day by Linda Rosencrantz. And um, Peter Hujar is a, a photographer working in the 70s. And I didn't know very much about him. And I think he came up because I just saw All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. The oh, yes. oh, gosh, I'm dying to see that. Yeah. It's- so good it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen and one of those films where I'm like if they showed it again I would just sit in my seat and watch it all um but I guess uh if you don't know and you probably do know Peter Huja was I think part of that 70s um scene and I think you knew David Wojnarowicz who I found out about David Wojnarowicz through um The Lonely City by Olivia Lang mm, yeah to the point where me and my husband went to Madrid to see the David Wojnarowicz expedition. Why was that so hard to say? (laughs) And had like the best holiday ever, thanks to Olivia Lang for making us that excited about that guy. Anyway, um, it's really short. And Peter Hooja apparently is famously sort of taciturn and quite grumpy. And even when he had to speak publicly, really didn't want to do it. Um, But in this book, and he's like, oh, it's like just normal day. Nothing happened. And Lindsay Rosencrantz asked various of her friends to kind of document their day. And I think this came about because he didn't document it. And she rang him up and said, okay, talk me through it. And he's like, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Um, Photographer from Elle came to pick up these pictures he'd taken of, I can't remember who the celebrity was. Um, And Susan Sontag keeps coming up and passing and being mentioned as does um who else is but it's really like so gossipy um and so the whole thing is a transcript right the whole thing is a transcript it's really really short and it's a very kind of 
like all the it's a, oh yeah Fran Leibovitz she keeps showing mm. up and if you loved uh, Pretend It's a City I think yeah. you'd love this oh okay real like 70s right. gossipy Manhattan and it's nice. incredibly glamorous but also sort of squalid and I love just <laughs> brilliant details about that sounds um, great that sounds um, right on my street <laughs> and then I had to buy cigarettes which cost 35 cents and you've got Linda saying um i then also read kick the latch by Catherine scanlon which is a new-ish daunt book and that's also transcriptions um with this uh woman called sonia who's a she started as being i guess a groomer and then i think she kind of becomes a horse trainer and it's mostly around the 60s sort of around um i think mostly the south america and it's told in stages and it's, it's quite staccato um and you have her childhood and then her moving from i think race yard to race yard and there is this incredible feeling of community because she's writing about being with all these people who just live and breathe horse and nothing mm. else matters and like the i mean there's there's cruelty there's brutal bits there's awful things that happen to sonia and happen to the horses but it's this masterclass in economy and um, I read it for the book club. And at the book club, we were like, well, is, does this count as a book? Because she was just transcribing things. And I was thinking, no, the digging and the journalism that Catherine yeah. had to do and to know what to include. Because the way Sonia comes across as someone who isn't a big talker, but there are just the most vivid certain lines and the way that characters are presented. And she sort of stays in touch with some people, but it's not this kind of constant cast of characters. And there'll be someone you meet early on and then they come back towards the end of the book and you're like, oh, great to see them again. But it's electric and moving and dazzling and really beautiful and really sad. And yeah, just like nothing I've ever read before, truly extraordinary. It's very much, um, I'm trying to think who, I think I described it as like like Hemingway meets Dilly Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's so interesting. And I do, actually that sounds that sounds really really interesting. I do love Daunt's some of Daunt's books, their um their essay collections and all sorts of things. So I'm well, definitely. I think gonna... we're both big fans of the backlisted podcast, don't we? And finding yes, books yeah, that we yeah, haven't heard of. And that's I mean um, Daisy Jones coming back. I'm obsessed with Eve Babbitt's, um, who I think was a New York Review of Books reissue and I don't feel comfortable if I've not got some Eve Babbitt's handy I was thinking about when I was away I saw a copy of Eve's Hollywood in a bookshop and I thought well I have it but I give it away so often another one oh well I'm going to put all of those in the show notes um but so you have Limelight's coming out in June you have a really fantastic pre-order competition tell us about that uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you like being on podcasts, and as I think me and Penny do, listen to podcasts and think, I would like to join this conversation, you're in luck, my friend. Um, if you pre-order Limelight in hardback from bookshop.org, you will automatically be entered into a prize draw to win the chance to be my guest on the Your Book podcast. And we can have a conversation where you tell me all about your literary tastes and you share your shelves with me. If for whatever reason you feel a bit shy and you don't want to share your books with the listeners, I will arrange an alternative fabulous prize. Um, but yeah, I love to come and nose around your bookshelves. That and is, I think there'll be other signed goodies and signed books and things. Such 
a great idea. Such a great prize. I'm sure there'll be so many people who would just absolutely love to have you come along and um, have a nosy at their bookshelves. Um, I have to tell you, Daisy, yours is my number one favorite podcast. I listen oh. every week. I'm so excited when there's a new episode. Is there anything better than hanging out with people listening to what's on their bookshelves? I just don't think there is. I think that's it. I think that's just. Well, I think by the time this goes out, this will have been up. But Mondays is a writer called Kevin Wilson, who's written a book called Now Is Not The Time To Panic, which is brilliant. I don't know if you've come across him. But my husband, Dale, producer Dale, is like, we should do this guy. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is. I loved it. It's about it's set in the very early 90s, um, just outside Memphis in a small town. It's about a teenage girl. She's got her three triplet brothers are like the town menace. Um, and then a new kid comes to town, a boy, and they're quite quiet and quite awkward. And I mean, something I love is there's no there's a sort of will they, won't they? But it's handled in a really beautiful but real teenage way where you just don't know how you feel about a person. But together they create art. And this art sort of eventually ends up going viral before going viral was anything. But it's such a perfect kind of documentation of of what that was at a time when if you're thirsty for culture before the internet was sort of widely around, like the 90s were no different from the 70s and Mm. find out about the things you love. And it's quite, it's, it's dark and light. I can't believe how well Kevin Wilson has written A Teenage Girl and he writes her mother really beautifully too. It was absolutely captivating and he's got the most gorgeous i think he's from tennessee so yeah i never listen back to the podcast because it's just me going um uh, uh, um but this one i might because i want to listen to kevin wilson's mellifluous sonorous voice <laughs> well that sounds great i cannot wait to listen to that one um and careering paperback is out early march am oh, i right so nice. by- March the 9th. So by the time you are hearing this, listeners, it's out. So do check it out. Um, also, obviously, Insatiable is out there. Um, thank, you so, thank you so much, Daisy. This has just been such a delight to chat with you about writing and about books and basically our favourite things. So thank you so I much. I've had a blast. I want to do this every week. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And I love this podcast so much. So it is a real honour to be on. Um so I know you talk to some iconic people. I'm a big oh, fan. Well, it's it's just a, a joy. I just get to sit and chat with people about writing and about books. I mean, yeah, it's the best. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.